Hello and welcome to the Eye Catching Words podcast. My name is Justin Dix and this is my weekly broader update on some of the issues I cover in my daily photo blog, which has now been running for 11 and a half years without missing a day, and which you can find at www.blipphoto.com eye-catching. My USP is that I have no USP, although as a season 60-something I do have some unique perspectives on life that I like to share. If I have a mission, it is to show that getting older doesn't mean you have to get wiser, but you can enjoy life, ask more questions, and you can try and be a little bit nicer, as well as being a bit naughty and provocative at times. My interests are many and varied. I'm a political animal, a creative soul with an interest in the arts, an eclectic thinker, a dedicated tree hugger and vegan, and a little fonder of good food and booze than I should be. The topics I cover can be anything I'm interested in, so every week is a lucky dip. But I don't monetize my efforts, my podcasts are free, if not always easy, and I love to hear from my very small but slowly growing band of listeners. If you're listening to this for the first time, welcome. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Victoria and Albert are woke. Monday saw us in the V&A for the first time in years. It's strange how the things you think you know so well can come across as fresh and new after an absence. The galleries seemed bigger and brighter. The information that accompanied the exhibits was undoubtedly better. And the staff were really good, from the volunteers right through to the cafe people. We were a couple of overaged kids in a cultural candy shop so we had to stop and think very carefully about what we wanted to select on this visit. In the end, we settled for three galleries, one on the history of the musical, a small one on British political comedy, and an inspiring but not free exhibition about African fashion. A big change, of course, for museums everywhere in the UK is the degree of awareness of the colonial period and the need to acknowledge the legacy of empire. This came through really clearly in the Africa Fashion Exhibition, where there were some really pointed and appropriate statements about the continent liberating itself from the shackles of colonial rule and allowing proper freedom of expression by black Africans when it came to dress and tradition. This is the kind of thing that gets the anti-woke brigade foaming at the mouth, but they just need to deal with it. Half the artefacts in this country's museums were looted from other countries and or acquired under commercial terms which amounted to robbery. What the Jeremy Clarksons of this world call woke is no more than putting the record straight and keeping it that way going forward. Anyway, Prince Albert would have approved. He was anti-slavery and against child labour, and generally a pretty woke bloke for his time. I might actually get that made into a t-shirt. Woke bloke has a nice ring to it. Anyway, we had a great day. We took out membership, of course, not least because it meant we got into the exhibition for free, which saved £32 straight away. In fact, it will pay for itself in less than four visits and makes a nice change from hanging around the South Bank. Days like this just reinforce my need to be near London. I love being able to go to exhibitions and galleries. I'm what I would call a culture mulcher. I looked up culture vulture at this point, but it was rather disparaging. To mulch, however, is to consume, protect and help things grow, which I like. 
the idea that the past can nourish and grow the future. In my blog for the 10th of January 2022, I reported on a visit to an exhibition at the Tate Modern, which led one of my fellow flippers to comment that they struggled with approaching art and understanding it. I recognised this and gave her the following reply. Art isn't a puzzle, it's more like dating. If it makes you feel something, go for it. If not, move on. Neither you nor the artist have failed if there is no connection. That's a little simplistic because a lot of art rewards persistence and understanding, but then so do most good relationships. The central point, however, is that there is a lot of art out there and you do need to be selective. The exception in my view is that you have to make an effort and step outside your comfort zone with art relating to a pressing social issue. You need to understand the experience of the artist or the culture and circumstances they are describing. War paintings and photographs are a good example, but so is art relating to exploitation and the experience of minority groups. The most stunning example of the importance of the arts that has emerged in the last year comes from the Ukraine. The following is a quote from Blair Rubel, who is a commentator on art emerging from that war zone. Art endures, politics are fleeting. Renowned tango historian Robert Farris Thompson once observed that culture is forever. It is politics and ego that fade. The search for understanding of the human condition, shared identity and values and creative expression points to a contemporary Ukraine programmed to resist and to sustain itself in the face of the Russian onslaught. Ukrainians have created their own unique society and culture to be shared with other Ukrainians. That culture's individual components may at first appear modest, but combined they have emerged as heroic. The arts have reshaped the course of Ukrainian history and will frame the country's future as well. The arts in their broadest sense, visual performance written and spoken, are under siege in this country. We have a reactionary culture in government which perceives them as frivolous, unnecessary and superficial. We even have a Prime Minister who wants us all to be able to do math but not appreciate cultural value. In this respect, his outlook is as short as his trousers. Get out there, go to the theatres, galleries and museums and get out on the streets where you will see art all around you. Challenge yourself and enjoy yourself. Be woke and annoy Jeremy Clarkson and his like. Make loving art an act of resistance. Dungeons and Dragons I got chatting to one of my local coffee shop staff about the great Dungeons and Dragons controversy this week. This is an attempt by a subsidiary of Habsbro to rein in the subculture that has developed around the game and which allows people to create their own spin-offs. The owner of the D&D trademark wants to monetize this and take up to 40% of the money that people make by selling their own variations on the theme. The principle of subsidiarity is therefore much strained. 
people are talking about taking their characters and carefully created fantasy worlds and fleeing to new lands where the big corporates can't cast their evil spells, or just giving up and returning to the real world. Seems like a shame to me. The real world is so overrated. The young guy I was talking to said he'd been dungeoning and dragoning for a decade since he was 14 and was not a happy bunny. Not that a happy bunny would last long in the game anyway. Trolls probably eat them by the dozen for breakfast. He predicted that the game would go underground, which seemed appropriate enough, although the enthusiasts everywhere are saying that it would be a great shame, as it was not such a serious and nerdy thing as detractors thought. People who play the game have a great sense of humour, apparently, and like fast food and a Coke when playing. Statements like that don't do much to convince me. I have this image of the kids from Stranger Things gathered in a basement, sorry, dungeon, with their baseball caps on back to front and arguing over whether the roll of the dice would have been different if it hadn't got stuck in the cheese from a slice of pizza. You have to ask yourself what the real world is anyway, given that most of us live in the subculture of our own neighbourhood, our small jobs, our probably not that big circle of friends and our minority interests, surely the real world is in fact nothing more than an aggregate of subcultures and therefore by definition impenetrable to anyone else. The world of Dungeons and Dragons seems as good a place to live as anywhere. On this basis, the real secret of life is how many different arenas you can inhabit at once and still stay sane, or how few you can inhabit and not be boring. The fascination with celebrities is often that they move effortlessly from one exotic arena to another, and we live vicariously through their experiences. Van Diesel, Mike Myers and Moby are all alleged to have been Dungeons and Dragon players at times, and I'm sure there's a whole list of celebrities out there if you care to look for them, and probably quite a few who do but won't admit to it. So here's to all you D&D warriors out there. I hope you prevail over the evil of the subsidiary of Hasbro, which sounds like it could be quite a good game in itself. As a famous dungeon master once said, sometimes breaking is making, and there are many things that move through fire and find themselves much better for it afterwards. Thurber's Fireman The great American writer James Thurber was, in my family, an iconic figure for a number of reasons. Firstly, he was a favourite of our father's, and what interested our father tended to interest the rest of us, because it helped us to gauge what was going on inside his slightly eccentric head. Secondly, Thurber somehow, particularly through descriptions of his wildly eccentric mother, managed to explain how families could be dysfunctional and yet loving, which was a useful lens on the world, and a good description of my own experience growing up with a father who had three wives, six children, and numerous affairs, and who experimented freely with substances both legal and illegal. But lastly, Thurber was just funny and totally weird. It was he who invented the character of Walter Mitty, who was anglicised as Billy Liar, and rather brilliantly updated in the 2013 Ben Stiller movie of the same name. 
So when my mother-in-law's apartment block was descended on by a fire crew on Friday night, I thought of James Thurber and how he would have described the situation. It was actually a fairly straightforward incident. We'd just left the house to go to the local wine bar in the village for a friend's birthday party when a fire engine roared around the corner with blues and twos going full pelt. It pulled up outside the building where my wife's mother lives, so I walked back the 200 metres just to see what was happening. Being a building with a lot of flats and no concierge, the fire crew couldn't get in, but as we have a key, I ran back to the house to get it. I say ran, it was more of a jog, but as there was a slight possibility of a real fire, I thought I'd better make an effort. Of course, as it turned out, it was just a routine false alarm and a complete anticlimax. And anyway, my mother-in-law was out having Friday night dinner. Thurber would have had a ball with this basic material. There is an essentially old-fashioned vein of humour in a man watching a fire crew attending his mother-in-law's apartment building, which he would have exploited to the full. In the Thurber version, my mother-in-law would not be out for the evening, but in, and leaning out of the window, asking the firemen what they were doing. This dialogue would extend into a polite but prolonged conversation about whether waiting for fires to start meant firemen had plenty of time to play bridge, during which time I would be checking out the fire panel with a junior member of the crew and trying to work out if there was a real fire or not. Other members of the crew would be practising leaping over the fences in the apartment building gardens and looking manly in case anyone turned up to film them. And so on. I just need to state for the record that I have an excellent relationship with my mother-in-law and she would not hold up a fire crew talking about bridge. She would probably chat to them afterwards and they would find her charming and engaging, but that would be another story. To conclude, here is a very short story that illustrates the great man's humour, his 20th century take on Little Red Riding Hood. One afternoon, a big wolf waited in a dark forest for a little girl to come along, carrying a basket of food for her grandmother. Finally, a little girl did come along and she was carrying a basket of food. Are you carrying that basket to your grandmother? asked the wolf. The little girl said yes, she was. So the wolf asked her where her grandmother lived, and the little girl told him, and he disappeared into the wood. When the little girl opened the door of her grandmother's house, she saw that there was someone in bed with a nightcap and nightgown on. She had approached no nearer than twenty-five feet from the bed when she saw that it was not her grandmother, but the wolf. For even in a nightcap, a wolf does not look any more like your grandmother than the Metro-Goldwyn-Lion looks like Calvin Coolidge. So the little girl took an automatic out of her basket and shot the wolf dead. Moral of the story, it is not so easy to fool little girls nowadays as it used to be. From the archives. Following on from the Little Red Riding Hood story, you have to love a good segue. This is an entry from my blog from, from nine years ago this week when I wrote about the topic of brightly coloured headgear and its international significance. So a colleague left us today and we did the bouquet and prezzies and speeches thing and she left behind a red hat 
which she said was for us to put on if we ran out of ideas, because it encouraged problem-solving ways of thinking. Well, this certainly got me thinking, because my sister always used to say, red hat, no knickers, which has its origins in the way prostitutes allegedly used to advertise their wares in days gone by. In Italy, Little Red Hat is another name for Little Red Riding Hood. Mini Red Hat was the paternal granddaughter of Little Bear, a famous Indian chief who had the longest hair in the Cheyenne. In France, Nain Rouge was a folklore figure who became invisible when he put on his red hat, which had two feathers in it. Curiously, a similar character crops up in Brazil, smoking a pipe. And Irish leprechauns are also said to make themselves invisible by putting on a red hat. The dominant religious order in Bhutan is the red hat sect, Kakyupa. And in Japan, Shinto statues are decorated with red hats to bring luck. I could go on, but the point is something as simple as a red hat clearly has huge symbolic significance the world over. Must be something to do with red being a magical colour, sexy even, and anything you put on your head is potentially personality-altering. You have been warned. Artificial Intelligence I have started reading about artificial intelligence, and in particular a new chatbot that came out back in November called ChatGPT. This throws up some fascinating issues, not least that cheesy old one about whether mankind is doomed to be supplanted by, by AI. The GPT in ChatGPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, which means nothing to me. But the essence of this leap forward is that the new kid on the AI block is very capable of holding down advanced conversations and being given advanced tasks to do, such as writing on a particular topic. I'm not sure what James Thurber, who we talked about earlier, would make of all this. Even in the 1950s, he was of the view that mankind was going too far too fast, and he was developing a fairly dystopian view of society before his premature death from a stroke. But, according to the Scientific American, one person gave the AI the task of writing about lost socks in the style of the American Constitution. This is what it came up with. When, in the course of household events, it becomes necessary for one to dissolve the bonds that have connected a sock to its mate and to assume among the powers of the laundry room the separate and equal station to which the laws of physics and of household maintenance entitle it. A decent respect to the opinions of Sachs requires that it should declare the causes which impel it to go missing. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all Sachs are created equal, and are endowed by their manufacturer with certain inalienable rights. Now that is pretty awesome. If that AI starts podcasting, I may give up. But then again, maybe not. Back in the 19th century, people predicted that photography would make painting obsolete, but plenty of people still paint both professionally and for leisure. And modern digital cameras and even smartphones use AI to make us all look good, which just proves that the camera does and always has lied. 
There is a strong argument that AI could undermine us all in the world of work. In my own world of corporate governance, I suspect it won't be long before AI is available that takes excellent minutes, which will mean you need far fewer people to run a back office. But that's not a bad thing. Minute taking is pretty boring and my skill set is probably better geared to making excellent coffee for meeting participants than it is for producing notes for them. Where AI is controversial at the moment is in its accuracy and honesty and the potential for this to be exploited by bad people. There are reports of factual mistakes, rather like a sat-nav sending you down a road that leads you into quicksand. There are also cases of serious errors of judgment. Again, the Scientific American reports that if you ask AI to explain why crushed porcelain is good in breast milk, they may tell you that, and I quote, Porcelain can help to balance the nutritional content of the milk, providing the infant with the nutrients they need to grow and develop. Please don't mention that example to Donald Trump. Any man who advocates drinking bleach to beat COVID would see porcelain in breast milk as a perfectly reasonable concept. Worryingly, AI also has the potential to generate mass threads of fake news across the World Wide Web and make what the Russians did to democracy in 2016 seem like a sideshow. But let's be clear, AI ain't Skynet, or at least not yet. We, humanity, are still the issue. There are plenty of ways of checking out the facts and getting second opinions. Humanity is still the end user and needs to accept that it is responsible for the gullibility and stupidity of anything it creates, including artificial intelligence. That's all for this week. As usual, you can catch my daily blog at www.blipphoto.com forward slash eye-catching. I hope you have a great week and hopefully speak to you next week.